Well, welcome students of Hogwarts. Welcome to Defence Against the Dark Arts class. Uh, that's what we're looking at uh, today, Defence Against the Dark Arts. Well, actually, we're looking at Nehemiah chapters 3 to 6, which uh, is kind of on that topic. Uh, we've got to keep going in God's work even when opposition comes, and opposition will come. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the work that you've given us to do in building your kingdom. We pray, please, that we'll understand the opposition that will come, the enemies that you have and that we will have, what tactics they use and how to stand firm against them. Help us to keep trusting you even when it's hard. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're going to be involved in God's work, you should expect opposition. Uh, I'm not saying it might happen. I'm not saying it usually happens. Uh, I'm saying you should expect it. Uh, Jesus warned, if the world hates you, uh, hated me, it will hate you also. Uh, English preacher Hugh Palmer puts it like this, the idea that we can be involved in Christian ministry and not have enemies is a much-cherished delusion. It's a much-cherished delusion fueled by, one, a sense of love and niceness that should surround the Christian, and two, the passionate desire of most of us to be liked. Does that sound familiar? We want to be liked. We think everything should be nice and rosy, but we're going to face enemies. Um, it's a fantasy. Jesus sets our expectations right. He says, many disturbing and disquieting things to us. One of the most disturbing is this, and we just read it in our chapter, woe to you when men speak well of you. He puts it the other way around as well. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. That is, if we take Christian ministry, Christian discipleship, Christian living seriously, we've got to be ready for opposition and enemies. We're not not to go looking for them and not pride ourselves on having made them, but we should expect them. And as we come back to Nehemiah today, I think we see it illustrated very, very sharply. Uh, But even more important in knowing that we should expect opposition and the kind of tactics they'll use, Nehemiah teaches us how to deal with it when it comes. How do you keep serving God? even when it's hard. Well, Nehemiah shows us how. And I think it's, uh, it's really uh, soul-building kind of stuff. Now, if you remember last week, Jerusalem lies defenceless. Its walls lie in ruins. Its gates burned down. Uh, the year's around 450 BC. It's 136 years since the nation had been destroyed and the city had been destroyed and the temple torn down. Uh, the people had been carted off 136 years ago into slavery in what was called the exile. And it, that was over in Babylon. And Nehemiah, in response to God's promise, because he's been reading his Bible, uh, has come back from captivity. He's understood God's promise. He prayed that God would restore them and he took action to, he took, you know, he took courage to ask the king if he could go back and rebuild. And he's come back with the king of Persia's blessing and He's come back with the king of Persia's money uh, to rebuild. And so as we hit chapter 3, the rebuilding of the city wall commences. And we might suppose that with God behind it all, it's God's promise and God's purpose that everything's going to go smooth, right? It's all going to be easy if you do a building project, uh, no problems. And initially it seems that it might be the case that it will go very easily because everyone pitches in to rebuild. They all put their shoulder to the wheel. Uh, I took pity on James and only gave him the first five verses of chapter 3 to read. uh, It's a huge, long list of very difficult names 
and the, uh, the names of the gates, the Jashanar Gate and all these kind of things. Uh, but basically it's a list of work assignments on who worked on what part of Jerusalem's walls at the time. And what we're doing done is taking on a full, a full circuit of the city, uh, showing how the people threw themselves into the work with all their heart, joyfully in partnership, putting their shoulders into it. Uh, if you look at the back of the handout, there's a, there's a map of uh, the city wall reconstructions in Nehemiah's time. Uh, and it, the chapter moves in an anti-clockwise direction around, if you want to go and look this up later, it follows basically gate by gate around the things, doing a full circuit. And so chapter 3 and verse 1, Eliashab the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. Who can see the sheep gate? Where's that? It's right at the top. You know, uh, why did they get the priests to work there on that part of the wall? It's right outside the temple. There you go, and it's where the animals have to come in for food and sacrifice. But anyway, they dedicated, they set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of a Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananol. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. And then 3 verse 3 is the Fish Gate, 3 verse 13, the Valley Gate, and 3 verse 14, the Dung Gate. That's a, no one wants to hang out there. Um, 3 verse 15, the Fountain Gate. 3 verse 25, the water gate. 3 verse 28, the horse gate. Until finally you get to verse 32. And between the rooms above the corner and the sheep gate, which is where we started, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. That is, it's laying out that somebody was working on every section of the wall. And they're not construction engineers. These aren't people who are, are builders by trade. These are, well, it's everyone. Uh, the priests got involved, and you know how ministers don't like to do any real work. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's Shalom and his daughters in the chapter. The, the girls got involved. There's Uziel, who's a goldsmith. You know, and they've got delicate hands. Uh, there's Hananiah, a perfume maker. There's servants and there's merchants. And, and it's not just that they come from every uh, level of society and every, every class. But they come from all over the place. They come from Jericho in verse 2. They come from Tekoa in verse 5. They come from Gibeon in verse 7. None of which are a 10 minute walk at knockoff time to get home. I mean, they walked for hours and hours each day to be there. And they're going to be staying there. They're on foot. They're not driving their chariots because they don't have any. And, and it kind of reminded me of Romans 16, which we looked at a few weeks ago. You remember that great long list of greetings and things and send greetings to so-and-so? But it was all about the, the, the hard-working fellowship and partnership that, that we have in the gospel as, as that diverse group of people engaged joyfully and willingly in an even greater work than this work. In fact, the greatest work, the very work God's given us to do to build up his church. Build it up and build it out. Uh, not with bricks and mortar, or not with Duplo, uh, but building each other up by in our faith, by prayer and encouragement and by sharing God's word with each other and to build it out as we uh, reach out to all around with the news of salvation in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And just like in Nehemiah's day with its physical labour, it's amazing what can be done when all uh, all of us work hard together on the same project. It's the sort of partnership that we're really seeking to build here at St Barnabas uh, and which we're hoping will only increase as we join forces in a few weeks' time with Glen Quarry 
as we kind of enlarge the area that we've got to reach uh, and we think about more things, it's going to be challenging. But let's work together uh, for God's kingdom. But let's get back to Nehemiah because no sooner has the work begun than opposition comes and it comes hard. And it seems that no matter which way Nehemiah and the people look, they find an enemy staring right back at them. Uh, We're given their names in verse 1 of chapter 4. There's Sanballat, which is a Babylonian name. It seems like he was the governor of Syria, according to history at the time. Uh, He was sorry, Samaria. Samaria is up to the north uh, of where they are. Uh, And he's got the Sumerian army there with him. You read on in a couple of verses' time. In verse 3, there's Tobiah, which is a Hebrew name, and turns out he's got lots of relatives in the city, which is why they'll never be able to quite get rid of him as the chapters go on. But he was a ruler of Ammonite territory off to the east. Uh, And in chapter 6, we meet the third companion. His name is Geshem. He's an Arab. He's a chief of the desert tribes of North Arabia. And so he would have been to the south. And then to the west, there was the sea and the Philistines, the men of Ashdod, as they were in the reading. And so no matter which way they look, they are surrounded by enemies who are all out to get them and they're trapped between them all. And the enemies don't like what's going on. They're determined to put a stop to this building project And as the next three chapters roll on, we're given great insight into the kinds of tactics that God's enemies use. And I reckon as we go through this list, you might want to think of times that these tactics have been used against you to stop you serving God and the ways they're being used uh, in our community at the moment because I think we see a lot of these uh, out there right now in the media. Uh, And you might think historically as well, how these tactics are used to stop people serving God. And so enemy tactic number one, his defence against the dark arts, understand them. Ridicule. Ridicule or mockery. That's a pretty simple way to make people lose heart, isn't it? Uh, ever been ridiculed for anything you've been doing? Uh, it makes you feel pretty bad. And that's what the enemies did. It started last week in chapter 2 but it really hots up in chapter 4 as the wall starts to go up. And so chapter 4, verse 1, When Samballot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed, and so he ridiculed the Jews in front of his associates. What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore their wall? Are they going to offer sacrifices? Are they going to be able to finish it in a day? Can they bring their stones back to life from this heap of rubble? burned as they are? I mean, it's the kind of questions that make bullies laugh together. You can picture them all in a circle. Going, <laughs> it's a joke. Look at them. It's ridiculous. Uh, they're pathetic. Uh, and, and it really stings when you're on the receiving end of that kind of thing. Anyone experienced that? Being mocked for being a Christian or being mocked for other things as well? Hurts, doesn't it? They carry on in verse 3. What are they building? Even if a fox climbed up on it, it would break down their wall of stones. That's pretty pathetic, isn't it? Not much of a wall that's going to be. Although, actually, archaeologists tell us that Nehemiah's wall was several feet thick. Um, uh, It'd have to be a pretty hefty fox to break that down. Uh, Maybe a Japanese monster movie fox, you know, Godzilla of foxes. (laughs) 
But that's how the opposition tends to start, with this mocking, laughter and ridicule, which doesn't need facts, it doesn't need the truth in order to bite deep. It's got nothing to do with reality. It's just designed to make you question yourself and the validity of what you're doing. But when ridicule doesn't stop them, they move on to threats. And that's the second enemy tactic. And Samballot has the army of Samaria there with him to back up his threats. It's not an idle threat. And so verse 6, so we rebuilt the wall till it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. There's the, the joyful participation, even in the face of ridicule. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were angry and they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. And so verse 11, you skip to that. Also our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and we'll put an end to the work. The threat of violence. And they don't actually have to do any of it. They don't need to. Just the threat is enough to bring the work to a grinding halt. And so verse 12, the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they're going to attack us. And so they're creating panic. Everyone's, they're not working anymore because they're like, oh, the enemies. <laughs> As one commentator puts it, that's how it works when fear grips. It grows itself. Rumour leads to paranoia, leads to defeatism. And I reckon that's why many Christians tend to keep their heads down below the parapet in a hostile culture, right? Uh, Threats, whether they're real or implied. Uh, I was talking to Adam Richards, one of our link missionaries through the week. Uh, He's down at Campbelltown Uni. Uh, he was threatened by a gang of uni students uh, in the playground, uh, in the cafe. Uh, uh, he'd been t- doing a Bible study with another student on, gay, on how to respond to gay marriage. Someone had overheard and they'd rounded up the troops and they kind of stood around them all and yelled abuse. Uh, the, uh, the uni officials have asked him to take two weeks leave and he's done that uh, in order to calm the situation down. Uh, he's okay and he's planned to go back soon but That's the kind of intimidation that's been all over the news, isn't it? And not just about gay marriage. It's been that case forever on all kinds of Christian issues. Whenever Christians take a stand, their opinion gets hammered. And sometimes it's more than empty threats that we face. It's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation next weekend. They weren't empty threats when the reformers stood up for Jesus alone saves and God's grace alone saves. They were threatened, but then those threats were carried out. They were hunted down, tortured, arrested, killed. But there's more to the enemy tactics. The third tactic they try when the threats aren't working is compromise. If you have to turn over to chapter 6 for this one, the walls are just about done by this point. The city gates have yet to be made and put in place except for the one by the sheep gate which the priest did back in chapter 3. And so the enemies are really worried it's going to be finished uh, and so they try compromise. And so pick it up at the start of chapter 6. When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies that I'd rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though by that time I'd not set the doors in the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent me this message Come, let's meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. 
you know something's going to be wrong if the plane's called oh no, right? Anyway. <laughs> but they were seeking to harm me. But it seems such a reasonable suggestion, doesn't it? Such a Christian kind of request. Hey, let's talk. Let's sort this out. What's wrong with talking? And for sure, there, there is a time for talking. There is a time for forging a way forward together. But sometimes there's nothing to talk about. Uh, no negotiating to be done. There's a time when the only question is, am I going to obey God or not? I know what he says, am I going to do it, though it might cost me? And Nehemiah knows the job he has to do and he knows these guys are only trying to stop it. I mean, they've used ridicule and threats. It's not like they're going to offer him anything that uh, you know, is going to go, oh, yeah, great idea, let's not finish the project. <laughs> so what is there to talk about? And he's pretty on to the fact that it's a trap. And so if that won't work, what do the enemies do next? Well, fourth tactic is slander. They just make up outright lies about Nehemiah and the people. Uh, they, it's, they kind of use the equivalent, the ancient equivalent of Twitter or uh, internet blogging uh, to do the work. And so pick it up in verse 4 of chapter 6. Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. You know, come for peace talks. But the fifth time, Sambalet sent his aid to me with the same message and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which it was written, it's reported among the nations and Geshem says it's true. Well, it must be true because Geshem says <laughs> that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt and therefore you're building this wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become the king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let's meet together. Of course it's going to get back to the king, because they're the ones who posted it to him, because they wrote the letter. It's vicious, it's dangerous, it's slander. Did you hear what Ken West did at Synod this week? I don't, he didn't do very much, actually, but that's <laughs> he dutifully did his duty. But anyway, that's, but yeah, it's easy to start rumours, isn't it? And the more you say it, the more emphatic you are, the more you spread it around, the more everyone believes it to be true. Just read the newspapers at the moment. I remember uh, at one church I was at some years ago, I wasn't the rector, but uh, while church was on uh, for two or three weeks in a row, someone ran around and put uh, anonymous letters on all the windshields of all the church members in the car park uh, and then they went around to all the church members' homes from the directory and put the same letters in their letterboxes uh, and then they sent one to the bishop uh, telling complete lies about the rector, uh, about what he was doing and so on. Uh, and it turned out when it was all revealed it was lies uh, and it had come about because uh, he'd been preaching that Jesus alone saves. And they were offended by that. You, you can't expect the opposition to play fair. All right. It's dirty tactics. And you can try and be reasonable, but, but they're not going to be. Satan is the father of lies. This is right up his alley. 
And in Nehemiah's case, when slander doesn't work, they turn up the screws and move to outright intimidation. Uh, It's in verses 10 to 13 of chapter 6. What happens is Samballot and his mates hire one of Nehemiah's friends, an insider, uh, to urge him to hide in the temple and break the Jewish law uh, because he'll be blaspheming against God. Uh, And they say, well, you should, you know, it's worth blaspheming against God because they're going to come and get you. They're sending a party to assassinate you. And so Nehemiah says in verse 11, should a man like me run away? God called me to build the wall, not hide in the temple. I will not go. And I realised that God had not sent him. He'd been hired to intimidate me. That's pretty hard, isn't it, when it's a friend or an associate who's saying this stuff. Your defences are down when it's someone you kind of trust, an insider. Uh, But these are the kind of tactics that Satan uses. It's it's so insightful and you see it around all the time. Satan's going to use these tactics and the enemies of the gospel will use these things to stop God's people doing God's work and getting on with God's purposes and living to his glory. And it's no wonder when we suffer those kind of things or we fear suffering them that we keep our heads down and we duck for cover and we keep quiet about being a Christian uh, and we, keep, we, we stop doing and saying what we know God wants us to do and say. Because who wants to face ridicule? Who, who likes threats? Anyone? <laughs> uh, who likes being compromised and being asked to compromise? Uh, who likes slander and intimidation? And if this range of enemy tactics doesn't ring any bells with you, maybe you've got to ask yourself, am I even in the battle? And I think we need to be aware as a church that the more we go from strength to strength, we've had uh, a great few years of growth and, and so on, and the more we gain momentum, uh, as we, we seek to grow God's kingdom in Ingleburn and its surrounds, and we, we know where those surrounds are now, <laughs> the more likely we are to experience these kinds of things more and more frequently and more and more intensely. So what do you do about it? I think it's good to be aware ahead of time so that you're not surprised when it happens. But do you, do you just suck it up when it happens? There are times when you've got to. And that's all you can do. But come back again and see how Nehemiah responds to it all because I think that's the real lesson here, how to deal with the enemy tactics and how to keep pushing on in serving God. So what do we learn from Nehemiah? Well, the first thing I think we see is his dependence on God. Every time these um, the mockery happens, the threats happen. He, the first thing he does is pray. Uh, he puts his life in God's hands. And in his speech and in how he encourages the people, it's, he says, look to God. And he's telling himself to look to God. As Marta Anderson always used to say when you're facing difficulty, you've got to give it to God. You've got to give it to God. Have you given it to God? Uh, God's the one we should turn to first for help. But that's really hard, isn't it, when you've got half your brain dealing with all these emotions that are happening and half your brain pulling revenge. <laughs> so there's absolutely no room in your head for God. But Nehemiah doesn't make that mistake. First thing he does every time is pray. And it's not just perfunctory, dear God, help me now. He, he, he's serious about it. 
chapter 4 and verse 9, we prayed to our God. They got down, the group of them, and prayed to our God, and then we posted a guard day and night to meet the threat. Or verse 14 of chapter 4, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Or verse 20 of chapter 4, our God will fight for us. And so it's the Lord's strength. It's not Nehemiah's rhetoric that's going to give the people real backbone in the fight. Nehemiah knows God and he trusts him implicitly and he trusts him explicitly. He knows God's power, he knows God's word, he knows God's love, he knows God's promises and he knows that what he's doing is the work that God's given him to do. And so we've got to stand firm in our faith. If we're going to stand firm in our faith, if we're going to go on being productive in living for our king, then we've absolutely got to entrust ourselves to him. First thing we should be doing is praying. If your prayer life is not in order, I think you're on shaky ground and I think you really need some help to sort it out. Uh, and so if you're struggling to pray at all, well, let's, let's work it out. We can help you in that. Our, one of our church aims, our first aim, is that we might be a church that's prayerfully dependent. And we've got to evaluate ourselves. Are we, as a church, prayerfully dependent? If not, how can we make that the case? Or how can we build it? But it's not just a matter of praying and doing nothing to help ourselves. The second thing Nehemiah does is take some very practical precautions. He prays like mad, like that's the only thing that's going to work, but then he takes active steps as if that's the only thing that's going to work. Now, some people might say that that's faithless, but it's not faithless. Uh, Nehemiah doesn't think so, at least. There'll be times when praying is all you can do, uh, but most of the time there's action you can do as well. Uh, I heard about a big split in the Ugandan revival in the 1960s. Uh, One group called the Kufufuka, um, they said, you're not a Christian if you try and protect your property. They had a slogan, trust the Lord, not dogs. Uh, And it didn't seem to occur to them what the other group thought, that God might answer their prayers through the dogs. And I think Nehemiah probably would have been with them. Chapter 9, verse 4, yeah, sorry, chapter 4, verse 9. We prayed to God and we posted a guard. Uh, It sums him up. Pray first, act second. Oliver Cromwell in the British Revolution said to the troops, trust God and keep your gunpowder dry. (laughs) Nehemiah is not slow to take precautions. By chapter 6, he's got half the people working on the walls and the other half armed to the teeth. He's got them all sleeping inside the city gates and armed in their sleep so they can be on hand to defend the city. Um, He keeps the trumpeter close to him because the trumpeter is the communication system. If someone's invading, you blow the trumpet and everyone's going to come running. And he leads by example at the end of chapter 4, verse 23. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. And by chapter 6, it's been at least two months and so they're going to need plenty of deodorant. Uh, Probably need a good bath at the end as well. Uh, Each had his own weapon, even when he went for water. Didn't matter what they were doing, they were armed. Third thing to learn from Nehemiah, be a straight talker. He doesn't mince around with his words. He's not someone who dithers. He's not someone who ticks maybe on Facebook, especially when it comes to the opponents. He's not rude to them, but he's a straight talker. He tells it like it is. He calls a spade a spade. 
Uh, Samballat, Tobiah and Geshem send their messages to him to come to these supposed peace talks and he just replies, I'm carrying on a great project and I'm not coming down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? There's some internal struggles in chapter 5, which we haven't had time to cover, where there's some exploitation amongst the people of Israel and he just goes down and hammers them. He says, what you are doing to your brothers, the Israelites, is just wrong. Stop it now. Uh, he's clear and he won't be distracted and he, he knows the enemies are up to something. In verse 8 of chapter 6, he, they accuse him of revolt and trying to set himself up as king and he simply says, nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your own head. I think if he was from Campbelltown, he'd express it a bit different. <laughs> you know, you're talking out, you Yeah. <laughs> And I think we've got to understand that there is a time when it's not Christian just to be nice, when God's priorities need to be faced, when God's people are vulnerable, when uh, the lost are perishing. And Nehemiah is not going to let go of those priorities or be talked out of them either. He's prayerfully dependent. He takes practical precautions. He talks straight. And the final thing to learn from Nehemiah is his dogged persistence in doing God's work. He won't be distracted. The man who left a position of respect and ease in the Persian court to go and work in a backwards country on his people's disgrace. In chapter 5 we spend out, we find he spent a personal fortune, not just the government grants, to make it happen. Uh, and he persisted and he persisted and he persisted in doing God's will, though he faced this opposition and ridicule and threat. And it's really a pattern you see even more vividly in in who? In Jesus, right? I, I, I think when you read the Old Testament, you've got to keep start asking the question, how does this point to Jesus? And, and Nehemiah, yeah, he's an example for us, but even more, he's he's pointing to what Jesus will do. Jesus, who faced ridicule and threat and ignored people calling for compromise. He put up with death threats and he kept going and he kept going even right up to his death. He wouldn't stop. And thank God that he didn't stop because that's how he would bring about a future and the protection for God's people far beyond the protection provided by walls. Protection from our greatest enemies of sin and death and Satan himself. That's what he was doing when he died on the cross and that's why he persisted. And it's that same dogged determination we're going to need if we're, not, if we're going to go on not just surviving as Christians in the face of an ever more hostile community, but joyfully thriving as we get on with the task together of building up God's church, building each other up and holding out the word of life in Jesus Christ our Lord to the community around and you get to the end of chapter 6 and finally, after all the ridicule, the threats, the plots, by prayer, by taking practical measures, by straight talk, by dogged persistence, they finish the wall. And it's only halfway through the book, but they finish the project. They set the gates in place. It is finished. They did it. And there's a joyful conclusion in chapter 6, verse 16. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence. 
while Nehemiah and the people of God kept their God confidence, the nations lost their self-confidence because they realised that this work had been done with the help of our God. Now that doesn't stop the opposition, there's more to come. But Nehemiah keeps our feet on the ground. He's not the only one who could be persistent, the enemies will be too, but even more than that, there's only going to be one winner. God's persistent and God's going to win. And in the coming days, I suspect we're going to face many challenges as a church and not just the practical issues of merging two churches together. That's going to be hard enough. But you can be sure as we seek to build God's kingdom in Ingleburn and its surrounds by proclaiming Jesus, Satan's not going to sit around idly doing nothing. (laughs) Is he? There'll be attacks, there'll be troubles, there'll be those who seek to stop what we're doing. How and when, I don't know, we'll have to wait and see. We see them more broadly in the media day by day, don't we? It's a very real thing uh, for Christians around our country. Uh, a friend of Jason's uh, has just lost their job um, because they wore a uh, It's Okay to Say No t-shirt to work and they were sacked on the spot uh, uh, for vilifying people, uh, which is illegal. Uh, But anyway, uh, Christian friend, uh, it's a real thing on the uni campuses. Uh, People at Sydney Uni are getting spat upon as they walk down uh, the walkways. So let's learn from these chapters of Nehemiah the way the enemies operate, but how to respond to them. Let's learn from Nehemiah, his example, as he points us towards Jesus, the example of prayerful dependence, of taking practical steps so that we can be the answer to our own prayers, of straight talking when there's nothing to be gained by dithering and by dogged, sheer, determined persistence in doing what God has called us to do. Our Father, we thank you for these warnings, but also these very practical things we can do in light of the opposition that will come from Satan and from Satan's helpers. We pray that we will be people of prayer. Help us to trust you above anything else in this world, to give ourselves to you, to trust you each day. Help us to do the practical things we need to protect ourselves when they need to be done. Help us, uh, help us to talk straight and not uh, muck around with what we're saying and help us to be persistent in doing your work, whatever the cost, because we know you are the winner. You are the one whose kingdom is glorious. We know we belong to you, that you love us and you're with us and that you will be doing what you do through us as we hold out the word of life to each other and to our world. In Jesus' name, amen.